Well, the great gospel of our glorious God. And in this series, we're going to be considering exactly what that is. I've recently been reading a book by a man who would say he is a Christian. He's received a good theological education. He himself has lectured at a theological college. He's held senior positions within the Church of England, including at Chester Cathedral. He has at least 14 theological books in print. Sounds impressive. Must be worth reading, right? See what you think. He says of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, these are his words. They point to a gospel which they sometimes deny. They do not look hard enough. Sometimes they lead us astray. The gospels are utterly fascinating documents. They are magnificent, but they are flawed. And sometimes their material is toxic. Christian man said that. He believes that the four gospel writers were often wrong, often biased and prejudiced, that too often they misrepresented the truth and could and should have done a much better job than they did. He believes that in verses 11 and 12 of Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, and that's where Matthew records Jesus as saying these words, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This man believes that those words are not the words of Christ at all. They're just Matthew's own personal commentary to suit Matthew's personal agenda. He looks at Matthew chapter 19, where Jesus has told a parable, and that parable concludes with these words in uh, Matthew 19. <coughs> um, it's where he talks about the, I've got the wrong reference there, is where Jesus talks about uh, people being judged and cut in two and tormented. And uh, it talks very much about the judgment of God coming, uh, coming upon people. Uh, it's the parable of the servant who has refused to forgive and, and is taken away to be uh, tortured until he relents. And, and this man says, no, they, they can't possibly be the words of Jesus. Jesus would never speak in that way. They are Matthew's own disastrous commentary on the end of the parable. Can't possibly be that. These verses, he says, they turn God into a tyrant who's lost all compassion. They turn God and Jesus into monsters Listen, he says this. That passage makes God no better 
than the one whose violence is so enthusiastically preached and acted out by the jihadists of ISIS. That's what he says. This is a Christian man, supposedly. Well-educated. 14 theological books. And his conclusion, if, if God is a God of compassion and mercy, he cannot possibly also be the God of eternal torment and judgment. Can't possibly be the same God, he says. Now, I'm not naming him because I don't want you to read any of his books. But why am I telling you this? For this reason. If you have a right view of the gospel, if you have a thorough grasp of the gospel, it will help you to spot most heresies that spread across the church. You see, if this man who wrote this book, if he does not believe that God will bring eternal judgment and torment, what on earth did Jesus suffer and die for? From what did Jesus come to save us? When the most famous, well, probably the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3, 16 tells you that if you believe in Christ Jesus, you will not perish, but have everlasting life. What did Jesus mean by the word perish, if he did not mean eternal judgment and torment? You see, this man who wrote this book that I've been talking about, he denies the inerrancy and the infallibility of the Bible. That all of the Bible is the truth, totally reliable, completely trustworthy. It will never mislead you, each word being the very word of God. He denies that. But you see, because he denies that, his views also become incompatible with the gospel. That nearly always happens with heresy. At some point, it flies against the teaching about the gospel. So if you are grounded in gospel truth, nine times out of ten, that will protect you from heresy and error. Now, compared to that first book that I mentioned... In a recent book by the American pastor John MacArthur, uh, he mentions 11 books that he's written. And all of those books he has written specifically to expose and oppose false teaching. And he makes this observation. So this is John MacArthur speaking. Reflecting on all those controversies, what is the most surprising is that in every case, the threat I was writing about had originated within the evangelical movement. When I was in seminary, he says, I had prepared my mind and heart to answer assaults from the world against the authority of Scripture and the truth of the gospel. I did not anticipate that so much of my time and energy would be spent trying to defend the gospel against attacks from inside the visible church including assaults on gospel truth from respected leaders in the evangelical movement. That's his 
observation after over 40 years of pastoral and gospel ministry. Now, that other book I mentioned, that was published only last year. The attacks continue. You need to know. You need to be certain. You need to be confident in the truth of the gospel. What the gospel is. What the gospel is not. The gospel is much, much deeper than we all love Jesus. Now, I trust you do love him because that is crucial, but it's much deeper than that. So what is the gospel? What is this glorious gospel of our God? Well, for about the next month, we're going to look at a number of key passages, primarily from the writings of the Apostle Paul. They'll help us to answer that question. What is the gospel? And my aim in all of this is that when we've finished, you will know that regarding gospel truth, it is nothing more and nothing less than this. Because it will sustain you. It will keep you. It will help you. And it will make you wise for the many, many wrong and false things that are being said in the sadly in the wider Christian community now because we're going to be using primarily the apostle Paul what I want to do first of all is ask an, an important question how reliable is our source material if we're going to be relying on the apostle Paul how trustworthy are the things that he is going to say that we'll be looking at together so this morning, I want to begin by considering him. How reliable is he if we're going to be looking at the things he's written in the scriptures? And I want to do that under three headings. And here's the first one. Paul, the gospel that changed him. The gospel that changed him. Now, compared to the 12 disciples... Saul of Tarsus, as of course he was before his conversion, he was from another world. The disciples were, for the most part, fairly simple working class men. Salt of the earth types, we might call them. Well, maybe not Matthew the tax collector, he was probably a bit dodgy. But we know that at least four of them were fishermen, running their own little business in, uh, from Capernaum in Galilee. Saul was well-educated, well-respected, a Pharisee of impeccable Jewish pedigree. Born in Tarsus, which is in the southern part of modern-day Turkey, and it was a, a Roman colony, and uh, that gave him the, the privilege of Roman citizenship that permitted him unrivaled liberty to travel around the Roman Empire and uh, all kinds of other uh, privileges that went with it but he didn't stay in Tarsus he came to Jerusalem for his education and in Jerusalem he was educated by the Rabbi Gamaliel now he was considered to be one of the finest perhaps the finest scholar of his generation and his grandfather the grandfather of Gamaliel was the famous Hillel who was 
one of the great scholars of them all. Some of you will remember, we looked recently, didn't we, in the book of Philippians, and uh, Paul gives, he gives a summary of his CV in chapter 3 of Philippians. We studied that last year. Top of his field in everything. A Hebrew of the Hebrews. If he was applying for a job with a CV like that, he'd immediately be, be placed on the pile for shortlist for interview. In fact, they might not even bother looking any further. We'll just give the job to him. Impeccable credentials and a towering intellect. Very unlike most of the other 12 disciples. Now in the Bible, we first meet him when he's a young man and he's attending the stoning to death of Stephen in Acts chapter 7 because Saul, this young up-and-coming Pharisee, is zealously opposed to these Christians. He, he saw this as this new religious sect. Most of the people then were known as the people of the way and they were getting in the way and they were to be stopped. And uh, we have something of his own testimony. We heard it in Galatians. Remember the, the words that we read there? As uh, he talked about his past, um, I often wonder what kind of thoughts and emotions went through Paul's mind when he speaks of his, his former life. Um, in those days when he will persecute the church in verse 13 of Galatians 1, you know about my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church beyond measure, tried to destroy it. He was right at the forefront. He was leading the vanguard against Christ's church, advancing in Judaism beyond my contemporaries, more exceedingly zealous. Uh, that, was, that was Paul and uh, in Acts chapter 26, we have a record of how he looked back upon his time. Um, from verse 10, um, in Jerusalem, this, this, this I also did in Jerusalem. Many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I've got the blood of believers on my hands, says Paul. I punish them often in every synagogue being exceedingly enraged against them. Well, that was Paul's former life as a Pharisee. But Saul of Tarsus has this dramatic and personal encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, of course, is at the very heart of the gospel that men and women can have a personal encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder if you have that well-known story as he's traveling to Damascus and Jesus appears to him and he becomes a completely changed man. Now, he was still in possession of his great learning, still in possession of his great intellect, but his life is transformed by the mercy and grace of God and he too becomes a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, mindful of what we just read in Acts 26, here are a few examples of Paul's testimony as a Christian, which enable us to see 
just what great change came across him. This is the gospel that changed Paul completely. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, I'm not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but by God's grace, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. His grace has done its work and he has changed me and completely transformed my life. That's what he's saying. In Philippians, in chapter 3, that chapter where he talks about all his great, his great accolades and achievements as a Pharisee and as a Jew. What things were gained to me, he said, these I've counted loss for Christ. I count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, now, what a transformation in this man. I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Having that righteousness, which is through faith in Christ and from God by faith. This is a form of Pharisee speaking. It's not the kind of righteousness he used to pursue. And of course, famously in the opening chapter of Philippians, for me to live is Christ. And if I die, that's only gain. What a great change. Let me just pause for a second. Oh, can you echo the words of Paul this morning? Is this what Christ means to you? Because this is the, the heart of the gospel. Bringing this knowledge of Christ to sinful men and women that their lives might be completely changed and transformed. Do you know Jesus like this? This is the gospel. Now we heard a little of Paul's testimony in those verses we read from Galatians. And we'll be looking at a few of those things in a moment. But this is the gospel that changed Paul. And secondly, this is the gospel that he preached. This became his life's work to preach this gospel. And what I want to highlight first of all this morning is not so much what the gospel was that Paul preached in terms of point, points of doctrine and things of that nature, but its origin. Where did Paul get this gospel that he preached? Where did he get it from and what is his view of it? See, Saul of Tarsus was destined by God to become Paul the apostle. And this is a crucial point in considering the reliability of Paul's definitions and explanations of gospel truth. He refers to himself as an apostle of Christ at the start of his letters. But elsewhere, he speaks of his appointment by Christ as an apostle. So 2 Corinthians 1, the opening verse, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. God is doing this in Paul. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he says this, In nothing was I behind the most eminent apostles, though I am nothing. Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. So God is at work in this man and has appointed him to the position of apostleship. 
Now that's important to remember because we're going to be considering the words of this man in understanding what the gospel is. And yet at the same time, of course, Paul himself acknowledges that he has been called to apostleship along a very different path to the 12 disciples who became apostles. So that in 1 Corinthians 15, of course, he refers to himself as the least of the apostles. Because of this different path to apostleship that he took, he calls himself the apostle born out of due time. Because his call to apostleship was very separate to the other 12. But although that's the case, we learn from the New Testament record that Paul, without doubt, preached exactly the same gospel as the other 12. Because he received it by direct revelation from the Lord Jesus Christ personally. You see, the words that we're going to be considering in this short series came directly to Paul from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So we can have absolute assurance in what he's going to tell us. Now think of it like this. Imagine two inventors. Someone like Mr. Dyson who makes the vacuum cleaners. And he's always bringing out a new one every two years. It's so much better than the last one to make you buy his latest one. Two inventors in com completely separate locations. And they, uh, they both come up with a, an idea and invent a new piece of equipment. Now, if you do that and you want to protect your invention so that no one else can copy it, no one else can reproduce it, no one else can sell it and make money out of, it, out of your back, what would you need to do? You need to patent it. And so you have to register your invention at the patent office. So both inventors turn up at the patent office to have their invention inspected. Is it significantly unique and unlike any other invention so that it can be given its own patent to their surprise to their total disbelief they both discover that they've both had the same idea and they've both produced an identical piece of equipment even down to the color they're astonished they place them side by side on the table and each looks at the other they can't believe it they start to take them apart and as they dismantle them, every individual component is identical in every way. Unbelievable. So much so that each inventor accuses the other of stealing their invention. How else could it be? That just doesn't happen. It just doesn't. But that is precisely what happened with the gospel, with the 12 disciples and the Apostle Paul. Did you hear how he kept saying, this is not of man? This is not of man. Uh, it's worth reminding us ourselves probably just some of the things he said in Galatians chapter 1. 
You see, God has been at work here. I make known to you, verse 11, the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it by a man. It came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then in Galatians chapter 2, Paul says, after 14 years he went to Jerusalem to let the apostles and the elders know what the gospel was that he was preaching. And the following verses through to verse 9 in Galatians 2 make it plain there that what Paul was preaching, which he had received from the Lord Jesus Christ without any reference to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem, was exactly the same message that the apostles and elders were preaching in Jerusalem. Because the Lord Jesus Christ had taught those 12 and the Lord Jesus Christ had taught Paul. The Lord Jesus Christ had revealed the truth of the gospel to the 12 and the Lord Jesus Christ has revealed exactly the same truths of exactly the same gospel to Paul. Well, of course Christ has done that. And the the, the proof of the work that Christ has done in the Apostle Paul is his change in life, but also that the message he's preaching and the Christ who he loves and serves is exactly the same as what's been going on in Jerusalem amongst the apostles and elders there. Paul's testimony is of a personal and unique encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. He mentions it briefly in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He doesn't go into an awful lot of detail. I think he actually struggles to find the words to describe it. From Christ personally and directly, Paul is instructed in the truths of the gospel. And so his record is utterly reliable. His words are utterly reliable. And he continues to insist, this is not of me nor of any other man. Six times in his letters, Paul calls it the gospel of God. Ten times he'll call it the gospel of Christ. And this is the gospel that Paul was preaching, that he will continue to preach. This is the gospel that we're going to examine together. And this is the gospel with his very life that he would defend. And that's the final point this morning. The gospel he defended. Paul's only too aware from the earliest days that there were those who were claimed to be gospel preachers, claimed to be apostles, even claiming to be greater apostles than Paul himself was, but they were preaching another gospel there are men today preaching another gospel Uh, last year we spent a few days in oxford debbie and i we went to the largest bookstore in oxford i can't help myself i go straight to the religion section the book that i quoted at the start of this my message row upon row upon row of books just like that (coughs) banner of truth books nowhere to be seen man after man after man after man preaching another gospel you need to know this is the gospel Paul defended with his very life his twofold strategy was to 
call out false teachers and defend the gospel while at the same time declaring it and making it known. It became his all-consuming passion. It became his life's work. For us to be sloppy or careless in this area, we are without excuse. And we must bring to mind the warning of Paul himself in Galatians 1. He, he mentioned it twice in case you missed it the first time. Anyone preaches another gospel, then he or she is cursed by God. He says it twice because it's that important. And as I pointed out right at the start of this message, peddling with other parts of the Bible, peddling with new methods of interpretation will soon, at some point, have a knock-on effect as to how you understand and explain the gospel of Christ. But if you've got those gospel truths firm and secure in your heart and mind, it will keep you and protect you. Now, one of the significant things about Paul's attitude towards the gospel is that he understood that the effectiveness of gospel preaching was all down to God. And that even someone like him, with such great learning and intellect and command of language, and even with his reputation, that could not in any way add something to the gospel that would make the gospel of greater impact. Just because it was Paul who preached it. Not at all. We read his words, don't we, in Uh, the second chapter of 1 Corinthians where he makes it absolutely plain that there is nothing about Paul's methods or the language that he used that in any way can make the gospel more effective. I determined not to know anything amongst you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, in trembling. My speech And my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. That your faith wouldn't be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. In the power of God. It's the gospel message itself under the unction of the Holy Spirit which does all the work. Twice in Philippians, Paul speaks of his appointment for the defence and the confirmation of the gospel and his instructions to Timothy as he prepares to pass on the gospel baton to the next generation. They're full of references to maintaining with integrity and rigour the gospel that he's received from Christ. Paul's saying to Timothy, now, Timothy, I've received something very, very specific from Christ. And in its entirety and completely unchanged, I'm handing it over to you. And you must keep it like this. And so what Timothy is receiving is just as if Christ had given it to Timothy. Because it's still complete and untainted from Paul's hands. Timothy, this is, this is what Christ gave me. I'm giving it to you. Now you must find faithful men. You must do the same to them and to them and to them. And how we thank the Lord 2,000 years later. Here we are and that same gospel, untainted, unalloyed, unchanged, we can hold in our hands today. And we can pass it on. This is an issue of monumental importance to Paul. 
getting the basic gist of the gospel is not enough. It must be kept in all its fullness. Because of the message of the gospel, here's the great thing, the message of the gospel is essentially very simple, but it is also very precise. And it's also very specific. So Paul says to Timothy, charge them that they teach no other doctrine. He talks about the glorious gospel of the blessed God which has been committed to my trust. Oh, how seriously he takes that. He says, be nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. Carefully. These things, he says to Timothy, command and teach. Keep it as I've given it to you. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident toward, to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this, you'll both save yourself, yourself and those who hear you. And the same themes come up in 2 Timothy. Um, I'll just mention one little section. It's in uh, 2 Timothy in chapter 1. And... Uh, after verses 8 and 10, where he's been speaking about the salvation that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, and salvation has been the topic uh, that he's been speaking about. Um, he says then, it's uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, from verse 11, he says these things, This salvation and the gospel to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles, for this reason I also suffer these things, nevertheless I'm not ashamed, I know whom I have believed. I'm persuaded that he's able to keep what I've committed to him against that day. Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Don't just hold the words, Timothy. Hold the pattern of them. Keep the message as it is. The gospel of Christ do you know what it is? Nothing more, nothing less. That's our theme. You see, this is the gospel that changed Paul. This is the gospel that Paul preached. This is the gospel that Paul defended. This is the gospel that meant everything to him. This is the gospel that gripped him and that defined him. That through the Lord Jesus Christ, all things may be made new and you might be forgiven all of your sins. By God's grace, this gospel of Christ, as we examine it in the weeks ahead, will do the same for us.